0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: Science Friday is supported by Random House. Publisher of When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, A memoir from a doctor turned patient about the fragile beauty of our mortal lives. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is available at slash air.
2: Listener supported WNYC Studios.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll be talking about the potential ramifications of an, of an overturn of Roe versus Wade on in vitro fertilization, and we'll be answering your questions live on the air. So give us a call. Our number is 844 724 8255. That's 844 SciTalk, or you can tweet us at SciFry. The first big news on the COVID vaccine front, where parents and caregivers of young kids may finally breathe a big sigh of relief. The FDA has approved COVID 19 vaccines for kids under the age of five. Today, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for the vaccines from both Pfizer and Moderna. Joining me now to unpack this latest vaccine news and talk about other top story, science stories this week is my guest, Omer Irfan, staff writer for Vox based in Washington. Welcome back to Science Happy Friday, Omer. Thanks for having me back. Let, let's talk about these newly approved
3: vaccines for young kids and infants. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this has been a long time coming, and that's largely because adults were, frankly, a higher priority during the COVID 19 pandemic. You know, thankfully, very young children have faced lower risk from the disease, but that low risk is not zero. You know, we've had close to 400 children up to the age of four die from COVID 19 in the United States. And so this is still an important gap. There's about 18 million children, and now finally, the regulators say that they have enough data, but it required the manufacturers to sort of tweak their formulation because. You know, a lot of immunologists will tell you kids are not little adults, and so they had to retest these vaccines at lower doses to make sure that they didn't cause more severe side effects. So, the Pfizer vaccine is actually administered as three doses at one-tenth of the adult dose for children under five, whereas the Moderna vaccine is administered at a quarter of the adult dose over two doses.
0: And how soon could these be available?
3: Well, now that the FDA has approved it, the Centers for Disease Control has to put out its guidelines, but very likely it could be as soon as Tuesday because, you know, Monday is a federal holiday, and White House advisors have said that, you know, states around the country and other local health departments have already begun to pre-order these vaccines, and so they could be available right away, and uh, regulators and and health officials say that over the next few weeks, just about any parent who wants to get their child vaccinated will be able to do so.
0: Yeah, that's certainly good news for them. And it's important for little kids to get vaccinated, right?
3: Yeah, you know, I mentioned that kids can you know, still get sick and die from this disease, but also kids play an important role in transmission. You know, as kids are going to be going back to school and interacting with each other, they can spread the disease to each other and then also spread it to other family members. So the more people that we get vaccinated and that are closed off as routes of transmission, the less likely it is that we will see more major outbreaks and we will also lower the risk of other more dangerous variants coming to fruition.
0: It has taken quite some time, has it not, to get these vaccines to kids under five? Why is that?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, it again, because adults are at greater risk, the priority was trying to get older people vaccinated. But it's also trickier to vaccinate and do, do just clinical research in general on young children. I mean, babies, you know, are nonverbal, so how do you get... Uh, notice about like side effects or any kinds of complications that they're experiencing. And similarly, you know, parents are much more reluctant to enter their young children into clinical trials. And so it's a much narrower, much more finicky pool of subjects that you have to study. And you have to be a lot more careful working with children. And so researchers have had to really be delicate into conducting these trials. And it's taken a long time to get this information to the point where they think that this is mm. safe and effective.
0: Good points. Let's talk about vaccines, a different one. This next story Is about another vaccine that's been around a little longer than the one for COVID. And I'm talking, of course, the flu shot. Now, it appears that researchers in Australia looked at how exercise influences immune response to the flu shot.
3: Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I, I read this piece by Belinda Smith at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and she wrote about this study that looked at 550 adults between the ages of 18 and 87 and researchers studied their immune response to the influenza shot, specifically looking at their antibodies. These are the proteins your immune system uses to target the virus. Now they found that looking at younger adults between 18 and 35, they found that young adults tend to have higher baseline levels of antibodies so exercise didn't seem to have as big an effect on them. But as people get old or their immune systems sort of get weaker over time. And it turns out exercise actually gives you a pretty substantial boost. And the researchers found that those who met the WHO, the World Health Organization's recommended amount of weekly physical activity, they were more likely to quadruple their antibody levels in their wow. blood compared to people who were inactive.
0: Wow. So, of course, we want to know why that is. Do, do we or the researchers know why?
3: No, and that's not quite clear yet. You know, this is sort of an association study. We don't know what the mechanism is. It could be that, you know, when your body is stressed by exercise, you know, the tiny tears you get when you lift weights or the strain on your lungs from running, that might prime your body to be more ready to produce antibodies and other kinds of immune response. But it could also be that the kind of people that get more exercise are generally healthier to begin with and have a much more robust immune system. So that's going to take a while to tease out. But what they did find is that the type of exercise does matter, that strength and resistance training led to a higher immune response than, say, 45 minutes on an exercise bike. Mm. So uh, this is just, just a general vote of confidence for getting a lot of exercise and yeah. its role in public health.
0: Yeah. Let's pivot now away from uh, vaccines and, and viruses to wildfires. The largest wildfire in New Mexico's history is raging at this moment, but it was partially ignited on purpose. What's going on there?
3: Right. Yeah. My colleague, Neil Danisha just wrote a piece about this on Vox, and yeah this was a result of two f- deliberately ignited prescribed burns. and these fires basically ran out of control. they merged and have converged to become the largest fire in New Mexico's history, larger than about tree 3- 320,000 acres. But the logic there was that you know by conducting these controlled burns, forest managers are hoping to reduce the risk of major dangerous wildfires because fires are you know a natural part of the ecosystem and as humans have suppressed them for generations, that's actually increased the risk of dangerous fires. And so the thinking is that by having these deliberate fires periodically, we can mitigate that risk over time. But the risk is not zero even when you're doing these controlled burns. And as average temperatures rise, as uh, drought conditions continue to be severe, you know, there's a massive drought across the western United States, the window for conducting these burns safely is shrinking. And so there's sort of a tension here that we need fires to help mitigate the risk, but the opportunities we have for conducting them are also shrinking.
0: Yeah, I imagine they'll be looking carefully into what happened.
3: Yeah, the US Forest Service put a pause on all prescribed burns right now, but other forest managers throughout the country are worried that we're going to miss the opportunity to conduct controlled burns in other parts of the country where the risks may be lower and the benefits may yeah. be larger. So, there's yeah. a huge trade-off here.
0: Yeah, they're not thinking of doing away with the burns, but how to do them more carefully or what happened here.
3: Yeah, exactly. And so they're talking to local officials. And uh, one of the more interesting things that developments we've seen is the uh, use of indigenous burning practices. So the Native Americans who've lived in these areas have often conducted prescribed burns on their own for cultural reasons. And there's been this push to bring that knowledge back to land managers and also to help you know reconcile mm-hmm. with some of the historical injustices those people have faced.
0: Let's move to more uh, of a nature, interesting nature story. It's one about changing climate, wreaking havoc, on the natural world, and I'm talking about a story about how a warming climate has altered the genes, altered the genes of the purple-crowned fairy wrens in Australia. And if you don't know what these are, I urge you to Google them. The purple-crowned fairy wrens, they're beautiful, but the genes are being altered by climate change?
3: Yes, and yes. I mean, indeed, these are gorgeous birds, and it would be a tragedy to lose them. Uh, I read about this in a piece by Mickey Perkins at The Age. And so these researchers in Australia, they studied these birds over 17 years, and they were looking specifically at a segment of their DNA called telomeres. So these are kind of like extensions of DNA at the ends of strands. Think of like the uh, aglets at the end of shoelaces. And generally, they're very long, early in life, and over the lifetime of an organism, they shrink. So they sort of as sort of a proxy for aging. If telomeres get too too short. There's too many genetic mistakes as as an organism replicates, and and that leads to aging. But what these researchers found is that periods of hot, dry weather led these birds to be born with much shorter telomeres. So effectively, they were genetically aging at a much faster pace. And now researchers project that as average temperatures continue to rise and as parts of the world become more arid, this will start to have a genetic consequence in this bird population and lead to more declines.
0: That's really interesting. Sort of an epigenetic thing going on there. Uh, okay, I want to see if I can get to our last story and maybe a bonus one we can throw in before we run out of time because this is a bit of a wild ride. A Google engineer believes that the AI chat bot Lambda is sentient? What's going on
3: there? Right. Uh, Natasha tiku at the Washington Post uh, wrote a profile of this engineer. His name is Blake Lemoine. And he has been, you know, interacting with this chatbot for the past few months and internally raised concerns that he believes that this is sentient. But... That sparked a huge disagreement within the company. You know, Google researchers looked into it and their team, the other researchers there, concluded that they weren't true or that uh, actually that the chatbot wasn't sentient. And because of that disagreement, you know, they put Lemoyne on paid administrative leave. And then he decided to go public with this information and try to raise this uh, alarm bell to to the general public to say that, you know, essentially we may have something that may be conscious in a way that we may have never created before.
0: And many other researchers are wading into this, right, into the debate.
3: Right. You know, some researchers disagree, but about whether or not this specific chatbot was sentient, but a lot of them are saying that this is a important warning sign that, you know, we need the tipping point for an AI that is self-aware, maybe closer than we realize. And we really need to start coming up with answers to hard questions now. Like, how do you even determine that it's sentient? What are your obligations to it? What if you're wrong? And then who gets to make all these decisions? Is this a product? If something is alive of a private company like Google, it, does the public have an interest in keeping yeah. something like this going? I mean, it's hard to say, but we need to answer them now.
0: But yeah, and putting the kibosh on talking about it, I thought that was very unusual because I think if a, if a tenured professor at a university has said, had said this, we'd still be talking about it.
3: Right. I mean, I think it also shows the uh, the tension. I think Google realizes the implications of what might happen if they have some software that may have a public interest. And so I think that there is there is that tension there that when you have a private company that has something that can have a huge you know, social consequences. Yeah. we really need to start thinking about that.
0: All right. Let's see if I can squeeze my last topic in there because I, I love it. it is that as temperatures are soaring in Texas, renewable energy has filled in the gaps to prop up the stressed power grid. Tell us about that.
3: Yeah, this is particularly true in Texas, which you may know has a sort of an isolated grid from the rest of the country. So they really need to generate all their old power that they need. And you may remember the blackouts we had sure. last year. And so people were worried that that would happen this summer because there was a lot of outages on the grid and that this summer was supposed to be really hot. But even though Texas faced a heat wave this week and record power demand, it turns out renewable energy actually came to the rescue. So this Sunday, which had a record heat um, energy demand, renewable energy, wind and solar provided close to 40 percent of the electricity on Texas power grid.
0: Wow. Isn't that uh, amazing where all that oil comes from? They relied on all that power, all that.
3: Well, I mean, Texas is the largest wind energy producer yeah. in the country, so people kind of miss that part of the story, too, sometimes. Yeah,
0: well, great, great story, Umair. Thank you for taking time to be with us today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Umair Irfan, staff writer for Vox, based in Washington, D.C. We have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the impact of Roe versus Wade, overturning of IVF, and the science behind fertility, We're going to talk about it. Our number is 844-724-8255. If you'd like to join the discussion, please, 844-724-8255. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
1: Science Friday is supported by ZBiotics. The team of Ph.D. scientists at ZBiotics are tackling rough mornings after drinking with their new pre-alcohol probiotic. This probiotic breaks down the byproduct of alcohol while you drink and sets you up for a great next day. Check out the cutting-edge technology for yourself at zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday to get 10% off your first order. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money. That's zbiotics.com Friday and use the code Friday at checkout for 15% off. You can help NRDC safeguard the earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information.
3: Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. We're continuing our coverage of the ripple effects of what an overturn of Roe versus Wade on access to reproductive health care in this industry might might ripple into. This week we're looking into in vitro fertilization, or IVF, as you may know. Roughly 2% of all infants in the U.S. were born using some form of artificial reproductive technology. And while that number might seem small, it's nearly double what it was just a decade ago. If Roe is overturned, roughly half of states would ban or severely restrict access to abortion. But how many of those laws would ban in vitro fertilization also? To get a legislative lay of the land, I recently spoke with Stephanie Boyes, associate professor of social work and adjunct professor of law at Indiana University based in Indianapolis.
4: I think it's really hard to say exactly until we see these laws go on to the books. What I'm looking at is the language of when they say that abortions can no longer be performed. There are sort of three camps going on right now. There are those states that would ban abortion after a certain number of weeks. Six weeks seems to be fairly common. It's pretty difficult to actually get an abortion prior to six weeks of pregnancy. So there are those states and those wouldn't affect IVF. And then there are states that are specifically using language that discusses the word implantation. And when we talk about implantation, with IVF, The eggs are retrieved, they are fertilized outside of the human body, and then they are transferred to a female uterus. And at that point, implantation happens. So if we talk about implantation, we could still have a creation of embryos and it wouldn't affect too much the fertility treatment services going along with IVF. What I'm concerned about specifically with IVF is those states such as Oklahoma that have already defined abortion as not being permissible after fertilization or conception. If we talk about fertilization or conception with IVF that happens in the Petri dish. It's very, very unclear what would happen to the process of IVF. Because if we're now saying, okay, these embryos have rights, are we saying that you can no longer cryopreserve embryos? Are we saying that we can no longer destroy embryos? Because those are things that are happen, happening very commonly in the United States right now.
0: If it's a crime to destroy the embryos, and these embryos that are in storage have lost the people or they, they've lost track of the people who created them and now it's up to the storage facility to keep them alive and pay for that. If they wanted to go ahead and not preserve them and if they're considered to be human life, then they would it would be a crime to let them just go away. Wouldn't it would it not?
4: Absolutely. It absolutely would. One of the issues in the United States is we don't have many regulations at all on IVF. We don't have a lot of data on what these clinics are doing. And so no one is really sure in the United States how many embryos we have cryopreserved. Estimates are generally it's over a million at this point and growing pretty quickly. And so if states were to say life begins at conception, it would absolutely become a crime to destroy these embryos. So we've got all of these embryos that are already created, So that's one side of the issue. And then for couples that are coming in or individuals coming in wanting IVF treatment now, would they be allowed to cryopreserve? Because what some countries have done is just done away with cryopreservation. There have been countries in Europe that have experimented with just not permitting cryopreservation, just saying all embryos that are created in an IVF cycle must be transferred also in that cycle, so in about five days after the creation of the embryos.
0: Back in 2019, I know you decided to look into the ramifications of fertility treatments if Roe v. Wade was overturned, and that was right about when Justice Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in. Did you think that this would become a reality?
4: No, I honestly didn't think that this would become a reality. I wrote that paper for a policy advocate audience. I wanted folks to be informed about the ramifications of overturning Roe v. Wade on IVF treatments, because I feel like there are a lot of policymakers and a lot of lawmakers out there who haven't thought through all of the unintended consequences of overturning Roe. And so I wrote this paper to inform policy advocates about how they could go out, explain this issue to lawmakers, and hopefully convince policymakers of the importance of maintaining Roe v. Wade and the precedent.
0: Mm -hmm. And what about genetic testing of embryos before implanting them, which is very common? How would that be affected by overturning Roe v. Wade?
4: So going along with IVF, once the embryos are created, most couples are offered an additional service which is called pgt pre-implantation genetic testing where the embryos are biopsied and they're biopsied for any sort of genetic abnormalities it's also up in the air i think it would go before courts if if this would be permitted would we be allowed to discard of embryos with abnormalities parallel to what some of the states have been doing where states have banned abortion based on certain reasons, if the abortion was because of a genetic abnormality that was found after the pregnancy was created, when there's genetic testing during the pregnancy. With PGT, we can actually do genetic testing before a pregnancy is even created, before implantation. And it actually gets very, very complicated as well with people crossing state lines. People might live in one state. There aren't actually a lot of labs in the United States doing PGT. And so you might live in one state where it's illegal, but yet have your embryos you know, frozen and transferred to another state where the labs will do PGT, do the testing, send them back to the state where you're getting your services, where it's illegal.
0: Could the overturn of Roe v. Wade lead to a push to better regulate the IVF industry?
4: I absolutely think that it would lead to a push to regulate um, the IVF industry as well as the fertility industry. As I said before, there are very few regulations in the United States right now. It's very often referred to as the Wild West. And so I think we would see more regulation or at least a push for regulation. In my 2019 paper, I looked at what some other countries had done. And generally other countries who have this legal ideology of life beginning at conception while also wanting to balance the availability of IVF services, there are generally three things that come up. One is that the countries might limit the number of embryos that are created each cycle um, so that we have less excess embryos created. The second is that some countries will actually require that all embryos created in a cycle are transferred so that we don't have any leftover. Some countries ban the use of cryopreservation so that we, again, don't have any leftover embryos. My thought is that we're going to see a lot of lobbying in this area from healthcare providers and from the pharmaceutical industry, because IVF is such a lucrative industry. A lot of lobbying for exceptions for IVF within these laws that define life as beginning at conception or fertilization.
0: Thank you, Stephanie, for taking time to be with us today.
4: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Stephanie Boys is an associate professor of social work and adjunct professor of law at Indiana University. And if you would like to get in on the conversation, we'd like to have you. If you're wondering or have questions about how an overturn of Roe v. Wade could impact fertility treatments, or you're just curious about the science behind IVF, or about the science behind conception and fertilization, we're happy to revisit the birds and bees with you on this one. So give us a call. Our number is 844-724-8255. That's 844 SciTalk talk Or you can tweet us at Fry. And joining me now to dig deeper into the science... Behind in vitro fertilization and take your calls is Dr. Marcel Cedars, Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology at UC San Francisco and President of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Dr. Cedars, welcome back to Science Friday.
5: Thank you very much.
0: We just talked about the possible state legislation that defines life beginning at conception when the sperm meets the egg. Let's talk about how this all works. What's the likelihood that a recent fertilized embryo would come to term?
5: Well, I think that's a really critical question. And even in nature, the best possible environment for that embryo, only about 25% of fertilized eggs will be a successful birth.
0: 25%, one in four.
5: One in four. Huh. So at the, And that so can the, go down as women get older because of increased genetic risk.
0: So, uh, so some women may try to do it a few times just to get the, have a success.
5: success. Well, think about natural conception, how many months it might take a woman to conceive. So we're not even talking about multiple cycles of IVF. We're just talking about the reality in nature, hmm. which is yeah. why the concept that Life begins at conception is really not consistent with scientific knowledge.
0: And that's something I want to get into next because I think, as you point out, at the heart of the controversy is the definition of when a human life begins, as expressed, I think, in this question from one of our listeners.
5: Why can't
4: science tell us when life begins?
0: Dr. Cedars, why can't science tell us when life tell begins? Us
5: Well, I think it depends how you define life. And so I think the the lawyers of the Supreme Court with the Roe v. Wade decision understood how complex that question is, which is why they talked about viability as in could live outside the womb as an independent sort of entity. Uh, And I think that's really the best definition that we have, because when life begins is so complicated by religion, by belief, by things that aren't um, necessarily shared by all of us. And I think it is something that is a complex question. And scientifically, we talk about life as living as an independent entity.
0: Hmm. For our listeners who may not be intimately familiar with IVF, uh, Dr. Cedars. Explain for us how the process works a bit, would you?
5: Sure, there's really three main aspects of IVF. The first is to give medications that increase the number of eggs a woman will ovulate in a single cycle. In a normal cycle with no medications, a single egg is ovulated. We've seen since IVF was created to improve the efficiency and the success rates that getting more than one egg in any given cycle is useful. So there's about a 10 to 12 day period of taking injections that stimulate the ovary. Then there's the egg retrieval process whereby we take the eggs out of the ovary and bring them into the laboratory. We get sperm that same day put the eggs and sperm together, and then we grow the embryos in the laboratory, typically till day five or six, at which time they can either be transferred or frozen.
0: Mm, Very interesting. This, This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. We're talking with Dr. Marcel Cedars, president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine about in vitro fertilization Uh, I know that there's a recent advance in IVF allowing embryos to develop longer outside of the body. What are the benefits of this process, and how would an abortion ban at conception impact this method?
5: So in the past, when IVF was new, embryos would be transferred on the second or third day after the egg retrieval but with improved culture conditions we can now grow them till day five or six to what's called the blastocyst stage. It's important to know, as would happen in your body, about half of these fertilized eggs don't even make it to the blastocyst stage in the laboratory. But the advantage of doing that is it's a bit like asking the embryos to run a marathon, and you've been able to identify the healthiest of the embryos, which has led to the biggest improvement in IVF safety, which is the fact that we can now transfer just a single embryo, and so we've markedly decreased the risk of even a twin pregnancy, and certainly eliminated the risk of a triplet pregnancy. And multiple pregnancies in the past have been the greatest risk both to the mother and the resultant child in terms of complications. Right. So being able right. to grow the embryo longer, select a better embryo, transferring only one has been hugely important to improving the safety and health of IVF.
0: And, and the embryos may go through genetic, genetic screening that often occurs before embryos in, are implanted, Correct.
5: They may or may not, on that day five or six, go through genetic screening. That would allow you to identify an embryo, for instance, that might be affected by Tay-Sachs, which is a universally fatal disease uh, and really mortality for young children parents could identify an embryo that might be affected by something like Tay-Sachs and then exclude those embryos from transfer so that there's a greater likelihood of having a healthy mm. child.
0: Mm. I want to go to some of the tweets and phone calls that are coming in. We're going to take a lot more calls after the break, which is just about a minute and a half, but I have a tweet from Serena on Twitter She says, worried about impact of demise of Roe v. Wade on IVF, young doctors in training are saying they will not take jobs in states that prevent full care of infertility patients. This will make the poor access to infertility treatment in this country even worse. Your comment?
5: Your comment? I think that's spot on. This is access to care, whether it's general health care or access to fertility care is severely compromised in the U.S., and unfortunately, it's many of the same states that would have the most restrictive abortion laws are states that already have poor access to care for general maternity care, have higher maternity mortality rates, and so I think that's absolutely Mm. true, especially since most obstetrician-gynecologists these days are women they may choose to either train or practice in states that get in between the patient and the doctor in terms of making the best evidence-based decision.
0: All right, we have a lot more calls on number 844-724-8255 if you'd like to get in on the conversation. We'll, we'll be right back after this short break with Dr. Cedar and your phone calls and questions.
1: WNYC Studios is supported by the Natural Resources Defense Council. You can help NRDC safeguard the Earth for future generations. Visit nrdc.org WNYC for more information.
0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the impact of a Roe v. Wade overturn. What impact might that have on in vitro fertilization? My guest is Dr. Marcel Cedars, Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and UC San Francisco, and she is also president of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844 Sci talk if you like, or you can tweet us at Sci-Fry. So many people have questions. Let's, let's go right to them. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Emily in the Bronx. Hi, Emily.
2: Hi. Thanks for the, taking my call. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, so- just to start, I want to say I have two children who are conceived via IVF, um, and I appreciate the conversation about this. Uh, my question is about how the before the last few months in this news with Roe v. Wade, most of the conversation that I've been in around IVF has been around genetic testing and genetic manipulation and what the future holds for regulations in those areas. And that alone was its own big, scary topic, and I thought that would be the main focus in the scientific and medical community. So I'm curious how now this, uh, how the conversation may have shifted uh, and if the the two pieces are being talked about together.
0: Good question, Dr. Cedars.
5: I think our bigger concern is really more basic because if there are additional laws like the current law that was recently passed in Oklahoma that states that life begins at fertilization our concern is can we continue to practice IVF in a safe and efficient manner? So can we cryopreserve fertilized eggs? Uh, can we continue to do pre-implantation genetic testing? Those issues that were brought up by the prior speaker, and that's a serious question in terms of how do we continue to do IVF in the best, safest way for patients. So other Families can be built the way yours has been. So I think we really have focused on these very basic questions about what these laws might mean.
0: Thanks for the call. Thanks for the call. Let's, uh, let's uh, go to the. Let's go to the next. Let me go to a tweet. This is an interesting tweet because it's from Rebecca on Twitter. She says it sounds like the richer people will have their interests protected with commercial interests lobbying for IVF while poor women will be impacted by lack of access to abortion. Dr. Cedars?
5: Well, I think that's a very good point. I mean, uh, ASRM has been very active in supporting all regulation that restricts decisions between a doctor and a patient, and that includes abortion. And we have joined with the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists on a number of amicus briefs. We were strong supporters during COVID of allowing uh, consultations for abortion to occur with telehealth and not requiring in-person visits since most abortions in the US are by medical treatment and not surgical. So in our minds, these are intimately created or connected reproductive health is really the ability to conceive and build a family when you want to and to not have a child when you don't want to. So it's really a spectrum. And these two things cannot be disassociated. So I wouldn't disagree with you. And that's why we are advocating for abortion rights and leaving these decisions to doctors and patients.
0: Go to the phones to Lisa in Rockaway, New Jersey. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Hey there, go ahead.
2: So it's so upsetting because as somebody who has been through four IVF retrievals
4: and have only gotten one good embryo um, plus a fist with a donor, this is the type of situation where it's really scary. When you have an abnormal embryo, if you're asked or told that you have to transfer that embryo, something that's not compatible with life, it puts you in a really upsetting and scary situation. I had a miscarriage in which I had to have a D&E at 12 and a half weeks. It was the worst experience I've ever been
2: through, and as somebody who wanted to be pregnant that badly, to have people telling me that they know more than science, per- perhaps because religion is intertwined into it, it's just, it's beyond my comprehension.
0: Hmm. Dr. Cedars, what what have you got to say about that?
2: I agree with you. That's
5: exactly what we are concerned about, is that patients will be put into these very difficult situations or be told that they can't discard embryos once they've completed childbearing, and they might be forced to donate them. And so you might have an affected, you know, a, a genetic child that you know, is uh, being raised by another family, which is a wonderful gift if you choose to do it. But if you don't choose to do it, it could be quite difficult.
0: Thank you, Lisa. Thank
5: you,
0: Lisa. Yeah, the, this uh, brings, this, uh, uh, brings uh, me to a tweet, actually, a tweet that's actually, sort, of the sort of the same that uh, came in. It says, um, if embryos are granted personhood, Does that mean, Beth asks, that cryopreserved have to be born? Would women who have fertilized eggs frozen be compelled to carry them to term? And I think that's what Lisa was talking about. about.
5: I think that is, would they be compelled to carry them to term or would they be compelled to continue to pay storage on them indefinitely? If they chose to transfer them from a state that restricted their ability to make decisions to a state that didn't, would they be forbidden from doing that? Uh, That can now happen to ship embryos from one state to another, but just as they're restricting on the side of abortion, being able to bring in abortion medications to states through the mail or through delivery, could you be forbidden to transfer your embryos out of state to discard them?
0: And what about where the embryos are stored in the infertility clinics? Would those clinics be required by law to keep those embryos viable? Or else be accused of murder.
5: Well, I mean, I think that's a scary point because not all embryos will survive freezing and thawing. As I mentioned before, not all embryos will survive culture in the laboratory. So will the... Physician or the laboratory be accused of murder if an embryo doesn't survive when we know as your very first wise question We know in nature only one out of four is capable of going to birth
0: Our number eight four four seven two four eight two five five lots of folks Let's go out to the coast to Ethan in Portland. Hi Ethan. Welcome to Science Friday Hi, how are you? Hi. go ahead Yeah, I just wanted to make the point that I think that um, a lot of the uh, people who are pro-life and uh, going to sort of make these uh, abortion and IVF bans um, do so in saying, like, well, we want to have a family, and I just had um, my third daughter uh, born two weeks ago today uh, with IVF, and I want to make the point that without that um, ability to have IVF, I couldn't have had the family my wife and I dreamed of. Wow. Wow. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Yeah, it's making possible. IVF is making, uh, you know, children possible for a lot of people. Um, Now, I understand, Dr. Cedar, that uh, you have spoken to colleagues who are planning to encourage patients to undergo IVF to be able to screen for genetic abnormalities ahead of getting pregnant so that if abortion for genetic issues becomes a crime, then you won't get pregnant and risk need uh, having an abortion later. Is that correct?
5: Well, I don't know that people have been encouraging patients to do that at the present time, but I think that's a theoretic possibility that will be there. So if you happen to be in a state that prevents abortion, say, after six weeks, so it wouldn't interfere with the process of IVF, but it would eliminate the risk of doing a termination later in pregnancy, even if the embryo, the fetus, was found to be, carry a genetic mm-hmm. deficiency. It may push patients who might not otherwise need IVF to do IVF. It might push physicians and patients to discuss doing genetic testing that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise do.
0: Let's go to Dan in Oxford, Connecticut. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Yeah. Hello, hi Can Dan. Yes, go ahead.
2: Yeah, hi. I just wanted to get the doctor's comments. I I'm, I
0: got a, a patent actually pending right now for the cryopreservation process. We use a using a Stirling engine, as, uh, so this would be a new method that wouldn't really need liquid uh, liquid nitrogen. So it might be safer for the lab technicians. Uh, and I just
2: wanted to see if the doctor has heard about this, uh, like solid state freezing as opposed to liquid nitrogen, and get her comments on that. Okay.
5: Yeah, I haven't really heard that much about it, so I can't comment. But I think in terms of the issue of viability and whether or not you'd be able to freeze excess embryos and then what you can do with an embryo once it's frozen, I think those issues would be the same regardless of the technology that you use to freeze them.
0: Thanks, Dan. Good luck with with your patent. Thank you. Another Twitter coming in from Erica who says, There is a huge financial aspect for patients. It's ideal to create as many embryos as you can in one cycle because you may not be able to pay for another one. I wouldn't have had my daughter now if I couldn't freeze embryos after a cycle. Limiting, that could be detrimental.
5: I think that's a very good point. And again, as I said, going to stimulation of the ovary versus, for instance, Louise Brown, who was a single egg ovulated, the first IVF birth in 1978 in England, increasing the number of eggs in a single cycle does increase the safety as well as the success rate because it allows you to have to go through the process less. And so the caller is absolutely right, it, particularly as most states don't have mandated coverage despite infertility being considered a disease, that if patients are paying out of pocket as efficient as we can make the process for patients, the less expense they'll have.
0: hmm talking uh, about in vitro fertilization with Dr. Marcel Cedars, President of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology at UC San Francisco. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Let's go out to the phones to Cheryl in Santa Cruz. Hi, Cheryl. Yes. Oh,
2: okay. Sorry. Here we go. I'm in my car. (laughs) Can you hear me?
0: Yes, go ahead. I hope you're not driving.
2: (laughs) I'm not. No, I pulled over. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I just wanted to say that um, since this whole thing has come up, that any type of fertilized human egg would be in jeopardy, uh, you know, in regards to what you're talking to today, as well as um, stem cell research, uh, because I do believe they need fetal tissue, and I do believe I heard it, correct me if I'm wrong, that they actually fertilize human eggs in order to use the fetal cells to make stem cells. And so all that would have to stop. And then what happens if Roe versus Wade gets reversed, does that mean any woman who's pregnant will be supported by the federal and state government in order to carry that baby to a healthy term and help them adopt, put it up for adoption if they don't really want to have a child?
0: interesting interesting questions uh, Cheryl let's go to the the uh, first part about stem cell research Dr. Cedars
5: yeah I think it's an interesting question I mean nowadays a lot of stem cell research are, are done with skin cells or other type of cells uh, and we're not using embryos human embryos as much generating new stem cell lines from human embryos are actually not covered, not allowed by the national government in the U.S. It's one of the problems with abortion and IVF having been closely linked really since the 1980s. We've been unable to do federally funded embryo research in the U.S. So for us, unfortunately, there are already restrictions about that countries like the UK that may have more guidelines for how to practice IVF actually allow embryo research up to 14 days of age. So, I'm not sure that this specifically will hurt that research since most has has shifted to what are called iPS cells that don't involve embryos, but it certainly may continue to restrict embryo research.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you Cheryl for that uh, question.
2: Uh, Yes, and may I make one more comment? Sure. Uh, Yeah, so I appreciate people having whatever religion they want, as well as having morals. Uh, But I also don't want them to make me sign up for their religion or their morals. And I thought there was a separation between church and state. So having laws that um, uh, give us, you know, we're supposed to have freedoms here in the United States, and we've tried so hard to get our freedoms. We shouldn't have them taken away by people who say their religion doesn't like what we're doing. So, you know, there's that old adage, if you don't like it, a person don't have one.
0: Okay, Cheryl, thank you for your comments. Um, A lot of people are going to be talking about this, uh, Dr. Cedars. This is certainly going to explode rather than go away.
5: No, I think you're right. And to the one caller who was talking about abortion decisions in general and to the last caller, I think you're right. And as the the young man who just had his third child, I've had patients who are Catholics and they say, my whole life I've been told to build a family and raise them in the church. The only way I can do that is through IVF. How can someone tell me that's wrong? And they've chosen to go forward because the bigger priority in their mind is being able to to build their family. And so I think that uh, the abortion wars have been such a prominent part of U.S. politics for so long um, that I'm I'm surprised and disappointed to see us moving in the direction it appears that we are.
0: Well, I want to thank you for taking time uh, to be with us and answering our questions today, Dr. Cedars. Thank you. Dr. Marcel Cedars, President of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, Director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology, UC San Francisco. Here's Kathleen Davis with some of the folks who helped make this show happen.
4: Thanks, Ira. Nahima Ahmed is our Manager of Impact Strategy. Melissa Mayers is our Office Manager. Annie Nero is our Individual Giving Manager. Charles Berquist is our Radio Director. And I'm Kathleen Davis, radio producer. And thank, Thanks for listening. Really,
0: thank you, Kathleen. And we helped this hour from audio engineers Lisa Goslin and Kevin Wolfe. B.J. Liderman composed our theme music. And if you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, yeah, this is certainly that kind of program. Subscribe to our podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. Have a great weekend. I'm Ira Flato.